Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, walking on the water, you revealed that he is fully God. We pray that we would ever be reminded of this, that he is worthy of our fear, our trust, and that we know that no matter what darkness or chaos we may pass through, he is with us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So as many of you know, I grew up in Maine along the coast, and probably at least some of you know that I spent a lot of time on the water. Uh, instead of having a camp that we went away to or an RV that we traveled around and we spent time sailing. And the nice thing about this is my dad was self-employed and my mother was a teacher, so we were able to spend a good part of the summer exploring the wonderful coast of Maine and getting to know it. And of course, in this, we experienced all kinds of weather, but there was one time where we went out and we were fairly in a fairly remote area, and the thunderstorms woke us up that morning, and, and that wasn't a big deal. They, they often would hit us and would just rest and stay safe and have a quiet morning, uh, enjoying each other's company. Well, this morning we wanted to, once the storms cleared up, to get back to someplace with more civilization so we could shower and have food and, and have all, or get more food and, and all of that good stuff. And, and this was, of course, before you could pull up on your phone a radar and go, all right, well, look, there's still more storms coming. And so we thought the storms were done and we headed out. <clears throat> And of course, you see where this story is going without me actually taking you there. A storm came through, and it was, it was one of the most terrifying times of my life. I was just in elementary school, and I remember being utterly terrified as we sat in the middle of the storm. And, and as you can see, we made it through, and I'm, I'm here to tell you about it. But it was utterly, utterly terrifying. This, this story we read this morning is, is a really short story, and if you were really motivated, you could, you could even memorize it and, and have it memorized by next week. It's, it's not that long. And if it wasn't for the, the amazing thing that happens in it, you would just think that this was a couple sentences connecting one story to another story, because it, it really is short, and you'd be tempted to sort of jam it into one of the other stories which we, we might read in, in John's gospel account. But as I mentioned, this profound thing happens here. And you might be wondering why we're going to spend the next little bit of time on these just few sentences of John's gospel account. You're about to find out. <laughs> so, so we meet, meet this morning with the disciples, and they had gone ahead, and, and they had gone at evening after this amazing miracle that we saw last week where, where Jesus fed the 5,000 and and they head out on this boat, and they're traveling across. And there's a, a really fascinating detail that would be really easy to miss. But they leave at evening, and by the time it gets stormy and they're, they're making their way along, it's dark. And anywhere else you might go, well, that, that makes sense, right? It's evening, and then it's darkness, and so on and so forth. But John loves to play with the aspects of light and darkness in his gospel account. We, of course, run into this most famously in the Christmas gospel in that first chapter of St. John, where he talks about the word being the light of man. The darkness cannot overcome that light. 
It comes up again in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. If you're less familiar with that story, go ahead and go home and read it. It's a, it's a beautiful story of this, this man coming to Jesus with a question. And he comes at night. And probably the, some of that is shame, but, but some of that is John using the detail of his, of his coming at night to illustrate Nicodemus's unbelief, to illustrate that Nicodemus is not yet with Jesus. Nicodemus is an interesting person in and of himself. We don't know a whole lot beyond that story, but if you read on throughout John's gospel, we learn that actually Nicodemus becomes a disciple. But John, at that early point, uses darkness to illustrate that Nicodemus not yet believes. And so yet again, we come to this point of darkness in John's gospel account, where, where the disciples have headed out without Jesus, and it becomes dark. Whether the disciples left, leaving Jesus behind because he, he told them to, or he, they just went on knowing that, well, he'll probably catch up with us at some point, really doesn't matter for our understanding of what's going on here. Because what it's really saying is, without Jesus, the world is dark. And we know this because we've experienced darkness in our lives. Will there be through heartache? Whether it be for pain, physical or emotional, whether it be because you watch too much news, you know how dark the world is. And this is made worse if you're not clinging to Jesus. Jesus is this light that gets us through that darkness. And so we get this amazing illustration of the disciples leaving without Jesus and there being darkness for them. And so they travel, and they're working their way across the sea. And it was done at night precisely because of squalls like this. They're much more common during the day. And, and you see, if you've seen pictures of Israel, you've seen that little blob of blue in the middle. Or maybe you've been there, and you've seen the actual Sea of Galilee. It's not a very big sea. It's a, it's a big lake, really. But it's 600 feet below sea level. And what happens is the, is the air from the southeast comes in and hits the moist air, and boom, you get these big, rough storms on the sea. And so the disciples, being fishermen, would have been familiar with these, and, and that in and of itself probably wasn't what made them terrified when they see Jesus walking along the water. But having spent time on the water, I can tell you, trying to make your headway through the wa water when it's rough and it's uncomfortable is exhausting. It's one of the most exhausting things. It's not fun. It's not relaxing like you want to be when you're on the water. It's, it's hard, hard work. And that's, that's really where Jesus meets them. They're in, they've made it most of the way across their journey, but they're just now in this sort of slog, so to speak, where they're bouncing along, and it's just not fun. But then they see this figure, right? And we can imagine it, right? And I think we've probably all seen pictures, some good, some really, really cheesy of this. But if we close our eyes, you can imagine this, this figure all of a sudden appears walking across these rough waters. And, and if, if it was any of us, the reaction would be the same of like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And in fact, another account, one of the other gospel accounts that recounts the same story, it says they thought it was a ghost, which, which makes sense. There's, there's this figure walking across the water. Oh my goodness, there's this ghost coming towards us. But in order to really understand the profound thing that's happening here, we actually have to kind of reverse into the Old Testament to understand 
the depth and breadth of their terror because they stay terrified as Jesus, and they're like, oh, I, we recognize him. And the first thing is this idea of Jesus crossing the water, which is in and of itself shocking. We have to rewind to places like Isaiah and Psalms and Job. For example, Isaiah 43, 16 reads, The Lord who makes his way in the sea, a path in mighty water. Or Psalm 77, 19, The Lord's way was through the water. His paths, or thy path, O Lord, is through the great waters. And then the, the kicker point is in, in Job 9, 8. Where, where in, from the Hebrew, it reads something along the lines of they trampled the waves of the sea. But if we look at the Greek translation, it echoes really clearly what we see here. And so already, John is starting to tie Jesus to being God, vaguely at this moment. But it's already starting to pop up. And so there's more going on in the disciples' minds of who could possibly walk across the water. But we also have to understand a second thing from the Old Testament. And Daniel is a really excellent example of this. Um, if you have a Pentecostal friend, you may have heard them tell you like this wild timeline coming from Daniel. And that's not really what's going on in Daniel. That might be right. That might not be right. But, but the central point of Daniel is to, to really draw out something much, much more important. We, we read in Daniel of these beasts coming up out of the water. And the water, in particular, in the ancient Near East, represents chaos. And so as we see these, these, these rulers come up out of the water, we, we figure out, oh, these rulers are going to be servants to chaos or worldly powers or something along that lines. And as Daniel spells this out, it's to prepare Israel for what's to come. That it will seem like the world around them is chaotic. And Daniel's using this to prove his hypothesis that Yahweh is sovereign over these seemingly chaotic events. One of my preaching professors somewhat jokingly said, you should preach through Daniel right before the election. And then he said, if you do that, you might get fired, but you know. <laughs> but the reason for this is because our default is kind of to see the world as chaotic. You, you go back and, and one of the examples of this is, is the Odyssey. It's, it's an ancient Near Eastern poem. The only reason I picked the Odyssey is because most of you probably have at least a familiarity with it if you haven't read it. If you think back, the hero of the Odyssey is this man, Odysseus. And I can't remember exactly, and I'm sure somebody's going to tell me afterwards what exactly happens, but he makes Poseidon mad because Poseidon's just fickle and Odysseus does something, Poseidon's mad at him, and so he's like, well, you're not going to go home for 20 years. And this is actually not an uncommon worldview even today, that, that either the gods or some fickle force or, or something along that lines, if you just make this slight misstep, is going to like come up and slam you, and it's, it's easy to feel like the world is chaotic. Modern secular theory, of course, really draws out on this, when we look at things like evolution, where, where a slight little kink in a genetic, a genetic formation causes a chain reaction, and all of a sudden, oh, there's a new species. <clears throat> and, we get, and eventually we get to this point where we think, oh, life is without meaning. So with all of this in mind, this idea of chaos and the Lord being over chaos, Yahweh being over chaos, 
we come back to our lesson this morning where Jesus is walking upon the water. Water which is the source of this chaos. Water which, which is this, this element of chaos in the, these people's minds. So first they're afraid, yes, of course, because people don't walk on water, so it must be a ghost. And then they realize it's Jesus. And they learn something shocking about him. He is able to walk on water because he is able to rule over the forces of chaos. He is able to rule over something that is otherwise untamable. You know, they would, they would know that. They've seen the sea. They knew that they couldn't just make the sea calm, that they couldn't do all these things. But, but there's Jesus, their master, walking on water. Now, you might be thinking, uh, maybe you're stretching here a little bit. Maybe you're thinking too much about what's going on here. But, but what happens next really drives home the fact that John is telling us this little story This little story which packs a great punch because he wants us to know something of Jesus' nature. Jesus then says to them in our translation in the ESV, it is I. And it isn't wrong that it's been translated in this way because if if it was translated literally, we'd, we'd sit here and go, that's a really weird thing to say. And it makes perfectly sense, perfectly good sense that he would He would say that as he walks up to them. But if we translate it literally, it's translated, I am. I am. And of course, if you spent any amount of time reading John's gospel, you know that John uses this to point out the fact that Jesus is God. He uses these in these timely presentations that prove who Jesus is. And so Jesus comes walking on the water. The disciples are terrified, and he says, to I, he says, I am. I am, and I have every right to reign over chaos. Nothing is chaos under my feet. And then he says, do not be afraid. And this is a continuation of that self-revelation. A continuation that we see in other parts of Scripture, like so many other theophanies, that is, so many other places where God appears to his people. And he says these words, do not be afraid. Right? Do you, do you remember this past summer where we looked at Genesis and we looked at this, and one of the things we might have remembered or noticed in it was this interplay of do not be afraid and fear. There was a good and godly fear when they saw Yahweh face to face. But there was a don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of these other kings. Don't be afraid of anything else. And so when we come before God, there's a fear. We read about that this morning in our Deuteronomy lesson. That it's okay to fear God because because God is so much bigger, so much mightier than ours, than us. And for whatever reason, our modern age has decreased God into looking at him something like, I, I like the term, the, the, Scott, fairy God, Scott, the, the fairy god mother of the sky, or a doting grandfather up there that you ask him or something, and poof, you get it, because it's kind of like magic. Or like Jesus as some sort of BFF type figure, like your best friend forever. 
And it, it's not bad to understand that God, God, through Christ, loves you, cares for you, has adopted you as children. But we have to remember what an amazing thing that is. There's this old, old uh, apologetic formula. Think of the biggest thing that you, you can think of. So the universe. God is bigger than that. And when we think about how finite and small we are and how massive the universe, to think about the fact that God reigns over the universe should humble us before him. But there's, a, there's another reality that outside of Christ, we've turned our backs on God. In sin, humanity, first and foremost, damages creation. You are called to be stewards of this earth. And yet we do that so poorly. In sin, we damage one another. We've seen that. We've seen the hurt personally within ourselves. And we know that sometimes something happens and it hurts someone else that we love. But most importantly, we turn our backs on God. We reject him. Though we were created in his image, though we were created to be in communion with him, sin causes us to reject him. And so when we have these theophanies, whether it be Jesus walking on water and the sudden realization, this man is more than my buddy Jesus. This man is more than my teacher. He is God. Or be that God appears to us in some way. The reaction that we see in scripture is often fear. And this is a natural reaction for finite beings such as you and I to experience the infinite holiness of God. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because you belong to me. My friends, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing to be afraid of. The seeming darkness of the world, Jesus is your light that gets you through that. The seeming chaos of the world, Jesus is the stability that brings you through that. My friends, he says to the disciples, do not be afraid. He says to you, because you are his, do not be afraid. And as short as this passage is, it ends just as, abrupt, as abruptly as it begins. And this kind of the interesting thing is they, they get to their disciples, and John says they get there immediately. And there's some school of thought that, that say that, oh, well, this is a, yet another miracle. But I think this is one in the same because he's settled the disciples' fears and then they get them to where they need to be. Christ calms the fears of the disciples and provides for them relief from the chaos and darkness of the world around them. We are reminded how often the world's view is that chaos reigns, that, that chaos reigns or that darkness reigns. And it can be easy to get sucked into this worldview, into this viewpoint. But this morning asks us this question, pulls us out of it, and reminds us that even though it may seem chaos reigns, Christ reigns over chaos. Christ is your relief and your strength when chaos and darkness seems to come. 
my friends, Christ reigns. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.